Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim brings us a message from the book of Matthew in which we take a look at how Jesus handles complicated questions. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. We are uh, continuing a series that we've been in for several months now in the Gospel of Matthew, the life of Jesus as told by Matthew. Um, We are in Matthew chapter 12 this morning. Matthew chapter 12. Um, this is one of those, uh, those passages that if we weren't working through Matthew, if we weren't like going verse by verse or chapter by chapter, it's one of those stories. Actually, this entire section is one of those sections that I probably wouldn't have chosen to preach on, um, which as I work through this, because you'll see it's kind of an obscure story and it's like, what do you do with this? Um, but as I've been working through it, honestly, um, I'm so grateful for uh, having to sit in it and having to wrestle through it. Um, there is so much in this one, um, and I find the things that uh, God may show us this morning I, maybe really more relevant than the passages I would have on my own chosen. Um, I should also acknowledge uh, that today is Pentecost Sunday. Uh, Pentecost is the birthday of the church. Um, it is uh, 2,000 years ago, God's Spirit came on Pentecost Sunday, and um, what was just 11 disciples with Jesus now became a, a, a small movement, which then um, you and I are here because of that movement. I, uh, I like to take this day every year as an opportunity, if this is the birthday of the church, as an opportunity to evaluate how we doing. Have we strayed off course in any ways? Have we, uh, are, is there something that we were supposed to be doing that maybe we aren't doing? Um, what's the self-critical look uh, that we can say, okay, where do we course correct? Um, where have we gone off course? Now, if I were to kind of pull the room, I guess is a number of us would answer that question differently. Um, but as I wrestled with it and then the text before me and kind of how these two sat together, um, what, the question I find myself, uh, I've been wrestling with the last couple of years, my guess is some of you have also. Here's the question that I came up with. Um, is, it, is anyone else worried that as a culture um, at large, not just the Christian culture, but yes, the Christian culture, um, is anyone else worried that as a culture we are losing our ability to have complex conversations about areas that we may disagree with each other in? It's kind of a rhetorical question and kind of not. Um, I'm actually curious if I'm the only one. Uh, the, we have a lot of, let's just say, things that we uh, probably need to talk about, big issues. Uh, maybe not necessarily from the sermon platform because this is more monologue than dialogue, but there's absolutely issues that we should have dialogue, especially as Christians, about um, big issues, big things um, from, from foreign policy and, uh, and war and kind of how do we think through those things to, to guns and violence or uh, things, like, um, things like abortion and life and how do we think about those complex issues or uh, race or um, sexual orientation and all the complexities around that conversation. There's like a thousand other examples of conversations that as Christians, we probably should have conversations about. Um, the, the, the issues, as we talk about them, they're complex. Conversations often get heated. Uh, you've noticed, what I've noticed, that is that people have very strong opinions. Um, but, but things we probably, as Christians, should discuss. And I 
am wondering, uh, as I kind of watch how these conversations have played out in circles that I've been involved in, if we're losing our ability to have complex conversations. Anybody else? Non-rhetorical question. Anybody else worried about that a little bit? Am I the only one? Okay. Um, uh, here's a for instance. I was at uh, an event not too long ago, and uh, we were talking about all of the things, right? So we were talking, you, you, your conversation kind of always starts the same. Like, we start with the weather. It's really nice out this time of year. It's unseasonably warm. It starts with the weather, and then you talk about basketball. I, I really hope the Celtics win this year. Uh, and then we talked about the Lions, and is Aiden, I think Aiden Hutchinson's is, is our key to turning it all around, and we're going to make the playoffs. Uh, so superficial, I love, like fun conversation, but semi-superficial conversation. And then at some point in the conversation, the conversation turned. Somebody asked a question about uh, an issue going on in our world um, that was a little bit more contentious. And uh, here's, here's what happened. Uh, by the way, the question wasn't mean-spirited. It didn't come off as hostile. It didn't come off as like an agenda by any means. It was a serious question about a serious issue. Uh, it, it didn't strike me as trying to be polarizing, okay? Um, but here's what happened. I, I watched somebody lean over to his spouse, whisper something, and then the two of them said to their kids, hey, kids, we gotta go. Um, I can see where this conversation's going. We gotta go. And then they left. Uh, and it was this moment of, oh, okay. Uh, and then we had, and by the way, we had the conversation and it, it, it was a kind of, debate, but it wasn't heated by any means. It, was, it ended up actually being a really fruitful conversation. But there was a moment where they're standing up and saying, I can see where this is going to go. And by the way, I, I, I can feel that because I've been in those conversations where they go south fast, right? And I can understand why maybe I don't want my kids to see where this could potentially go. I totally understand why someone would get there. But for me, what's been the most bothersome of that is are we losing our ability to have complex conversations about hard things? Um, I, I think maybe behind it all is over the last couple of years, a lot of us, um, and I'll say us because I, I felt this, you have a conversation and then you feel as though like it's an actual question you're asking. Like you don't ha- you're not, not an agenda necessarily. You just have a question. And it's like it's an opportunity for someone to, to, to fire at you. And over time, you take enough of those hits and you're like, I don't know if I want to have the conversation at all. So I'll just avoid those topics. And then what happens when we do that is it kind of creates a vacuum in which all the logical, reasonable people say, I'm not going to talk about those hard things. And so the people that fill the vacuum are the, the, the hostile, uh, the, the most loud, the most, uh, like, uh, in the, the kids call them trolls, right? You know what I mean? Um, like, those people fill the void. I, uh, I was listening to a podcast, highly recommend this podcast. It's a conversation between a theologian named Russell Moore and an author named Jonathan Haidt. Um, Jonathan Haidt is a professor and he's a social psychologist. He actually wrote a book uh, that I, I, I recommend a lot uh, called The Righteous Mind. And it's all about like how do we, um, I think I got a picture of the book, um, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Great book, great, great, great book. Highly recommend it. Uh, but the podcast episode, more accessible, uh, the podcast um, is, uh, it was on the Russell Moore Show. And Jonathan Haidt says, social media is making America stupid. Uh, the premise of his podcast was that America all got stupid at exactly the same time. And then he tells us when it happened. That's just your teaser. Um, but uh, anyway, at some point, in the, it's a great conversation. But at one point in the conversation, uh, he's telling the story of this, this homeschool group 
and they're getting together to talk through, like, I don't, I don't know what homeschool groups talk about, but all the things. And at, at one point, um, the homeschool group reported that there was a, a faction of the group who were, um, uh, have you heard of flat earthers? Believe that the earth is flat, not a globe. And so uh, the, the leaders of this group would, like, it began, like, they started, like, yelling and causing a scene inside the group. And so the leaders of the group decided, you know, it's, it's just not worth the fight. Like, I'm getting shot at. I'm getting hit. Uh, it's not worth it. Um, and so we'll just avoid the word globe when we talk about the world. We'll just avoid the word um, because it's easier. And so he points to that story and says, and unfortunately, I think this is happening more and more. It's that, that loving humble, logical people are simply saying, I've tried to have that conversation. I saw where it went. I'll just not have the conversation at all because then at least I won't have to take the hit. I won't get in the middle of a fight that I didn't want to get into. And then it creates this vacuum in which the loudest voices kind of get the floor and stay on the floor. In, in many ways, I think social media has become like just those voices in many ways. Um, but I want to propose that on this Pentecost and looking at the story we're about to look at, um, one of the things we must we must re-engage is how do we talk about complex issues in ways that are Christ-like, humble, that listen well, um, but also like actually engage the conversation. I, honestly, if I can say it more boldly, I don't think we can move forward long as people. I don't know how long we can move forward if we don't figure out how to do this. And quite frankly, I don't, I don't expect this to come out of our political parties. I don't, I don't expect them to do this. I don't have much hope in that. I don't expect this to, uh, I, I don't expect this to come out of our media outlets. Um, and I'm not trying to say controversial things. I just don't expect it. I don't expect, I for sure don't expect this to come through social media. I don't, uh, I, I actually think that social media is probably the last place we should go to have these kinds of hard conversations about complex issues. But I do believe that the church can do this. It's going to be hard because we've gotten kind of like programmed by how we talk about things in our world. But I do believe that the church can do this. And I would argue that for the sake of our communities, for the, for the sake of our nation, maybe even for the sake of our world, we must figure out how to do this. And we have to go first. I think we have to go first. Um, there's a quote by the Apostle Paul. And uh, Paul says this thing, he's, he's writing to a church he planted, he's a church planter, and he's writing to a church that he started, and he's kind of surveying the room, and he talks about why in this room there are people who disagree with each other on uh, hard things. And he says these words, I, I find this stunning. He says, for Jesus himself is our peace, who, this is Ephesians 2, by the way, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. And then he says this line. This is the key. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. I, I love that language of one new humanity. Uh, through Jesus, through the cross, um, if, you've, if you're finding yourself like, I don't know that I like the way humans are to each other right now, I want to propose to you that, um, that all along, the Christian church has been talking about this, 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 what God has been up to, this, this thing that God has been doing in the world that we call the church, is actually about building a whole new way to do it. Yeah, the old humanity is really sad, but there's a new way to be human. Now, that was all introduction. I say that. 
Um, I say that because uh, the passage we're going to look at this morning is uh, a story about in which Jesus engages a really heated debate. It's a controversial debate in his day, maybe not as much in our day, but I do think we can learn from how Jesus engages in this debate for how it is that maybe we can begin to think. Again, we're starting the conversation. We're not, I'm not telling you how to do it necessarily, but we're starting a, for how to have difficult, potentially contentious, hard conversations about really complex issues. Um, Jesus is engaging in debate, but uh, I think um, what I want to do is I want to take you into the weeds of that debate. I want to show you the debate so you get a sense of, okay, that's what's actually going on. And then we'll kind of come back if, if we have time, and uh, we'll think about our world and how do we apply the things we've seen in Jesus to the world that you and I live in. Now, sound good? Is that, that's my goal? Okay. Uh, Matthew 12, we'll begin in verse 1. Uh, Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, uh, we often give the Pharisees a bad rap. They were just religious leaders who were trying to get it right. Okay? Um, they often get it wrong. Jesus will call them out on it. But uh, they're his neighbors. And so he's most critical of those he's most, that are the closest to him in theology. So, uh, but when the, the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So uh, the lawful there is a way of talking about the Torah. Let me hear you say Torah. Torah. Torah, Torah is the first five books of the Bible, uh, their Bible and our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is the Torah. The Torah is a collection of stories and poems and uh, rules, commandments. Uh, there are 613 commands in the Torah and uh, to the good Jewish people, the Pharisees especially, they didn't want to break them. And so they see what Jesus is doing, and they're saying, that's not lawful. Now, is what they're referring to here, is it, is, is it lawful according to Torah? Or are you breaking Torah law if you walk through a field on the Sabbath? Uh, for them, Saturday, the day they set aside, God says to keep it holy. Is walking through a field on the Sabbath breaking Torah law? The answer is No. Walking through a field is not breaking Torah law. The Bible, uh, Torah law says you're not allowed to journey on the Sabbath, but you are allowed to move around your community. You just can't, like, travel on vacation. But you're allowed to move through your community. In fact, um, uh, they have, there's, if, to this day, you'll see these poles that are in, on the edge of communities. Uh, they're known as Aruv, E-R-U-V. And these poles mark, okay, if you're beyond that pole, you're journeying. If you're inside the poles, you're good. You're, you're in your community. You're moving about your community. Um, here's an image. You see the, that was taken a couple weeks ago in Gezer, Tel Gezer, um, one of the biblical cities. Uh, just these big old poles. You see them. You say, what's the pole about? Okay, that's how far I can go. If I go outside the pole on the Sabbath, I'm now journeying. Is it breaking Torah law to, for Jesus to be uh, walking through a field? No. Second question. Is Jesus, is what they're referring to here, is it okay according to Torah law to take someone else's grain? His disciples grab grain. They begin eating it. Is that lawful? Now, we would want to say, uh, no, that's not lawful. You're breaking the law there because that's stealing. If I came into your garden and I grabbed a tomato and all my friends came and we grabbed tomatoes and we started eating your tomatoes, you would say, that's my property. You can't have my tomato. But according to Torah law, according to, to this day in Jewish culture, totally okay. If you're hungry and you're in someone's field, God provided that food. You may have the food. You can't collect more than you need. You can't take back with you, but if you're hungry, you can grab. That's still to this day, you see a fig and you want a fig, you can take it. 
The culture understands that the land is God's. He's the one who provides, and if you're hungry, you may take it. If you're not hungry, well, that's on you. That's like a, but it's not breaking the law. Third question, can you, uh, is it okay, according to the Torah law, for them to do this on the Sabbath? Ah, now here's where the debate comes in. Is it lawful to do this on the Sabbath? Because Torah speaks about Sabbath a lot, but as far as uh, the laws of what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath, there really aren't many laws. There is a, uh, a law, in, it's an obscure law in the book of Numbers that says you cannot light a fire on the Sabbath, so you can't do that, which to modern day, like it's, there's all kinds of debate around what well, can you use an elevator because that's electricity, and there's all kinds of debate around how does that apply to today. Um, so there's that law, but by and large, the majority of the laws you find throughout Torah is don't work, do not 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 work. Now, do you see the problem with that law? God says don't work, but God never says this is what work is. Okay, so God doesn't say this is work and this is not work. We know that lighting a fire must be work, but what about all the other things? For instance, uh, can you go for a run on the Sabbath? Is running work? Who would say running is work? <laughs> Who would say running? No way. That's how I recharge. That's how God fills my battery. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you see how it's, it's, it's complex. It's complicated. Uh, some of you are thinking, if I'm running, then I'm being chased, and I don't care if that's work. Um, yeah, but like you see, it's complicated. How do you know? Now, if you just ignore the rules, that creates like a slippery slope, right? Like if you just ignore the rules, you now have a slippery slope. It allows you to open it up to, well, I'll just, I can ignore new rules. Um, if you just have the, well, I'll be the judge of what's work. If it feels like work to me, then it's work. And if it doesn't feel like work to me, well, then it's not work. That's like a slippery slope. But at the same time, you don't want to be overly legalistic about it. You don't want, as kids, it was the, you may float in the water, but you may not splash in the water because splashing is like, you don't want to be overly legalistic. So what do you do? What do you do? Um, and to further complicate things, Jesus is walking with his disciples on the Sabbath, and they pluck some grain. Uh, they're hungry. You have to eat. It's survival. But on the other side, well, you can go a day without eating, right? You can't. It's complicated. Do you, do you see it's complicated? Yeah? It's just nod. It makes me feel good. Uh, sometimes life pre presents us with choices that are complicated, um, the obvious examples. Can you steal a loaf of bread to feed your hungry family? Uh, can you kill someone if it's the last resort act of self-defense? What if somebody else's life is in danger? Can you lie if someone asks you whether the genes make them look good? Like, you see how, like, now, stealing, killing, and lying are all sins according to the Ten Commandments. They're like the top ten sins, right? The ten, top ten sins are stealing, kill, killing, stealing, killing, and lying. And yet we hear those and we say, well, yes, and there may be some like times where well, it's complicated. It's complicated. It's complicated. Sometimes life throws at us ethically murky situations that aren't black and they aren't white. There is not a clear right and there's not a clear wrong. Now, um, you're still thinking, well, what about the slippery slope, right? If, you're, if, you're, if your family's hungry and it's like the last resort and you say, okay, I got to steal bread to feed my hungry family, like the Robin Hood thing, right? I got to steal bread to feed my hungry family. And you say, okay, well, I, I can understand why that would be the case. 
But then somebody else comes along and says, well, I had a sugar craving, and there were Sour Patch Kids in the store, and they were just kind of hanging out there as I was walking out, and I could just grab them. Is, now, you hear that, and you say, well, obviously that's wrong. But do you see how they're in the same category, <laughs> right? Like, if you can justify one, what leads you to not being able to justify the other one? If you can say, well, if I'm hungry, i got to do this, but what, what would lead you to say, well, I have a sugar tooth. It's not my fault. God gave me my taste buds. I can steal the Sour Patch Kids. Sometimes life throws at us situations that, that aren't, aren't clear. Um, and this seems to be the concern of the religious leaders, that Jesus, if you make an exception to this one, like, where does this stop? Like, where does it stop? Like, like if you just like, are making exceptions to all the rules, where, if you're justifying actions, where does the justifying stop? Again, they're just trying to do what God told them to do. They're just trying to follow the scriptures. That's all they're trying to do. Now, do they get it wrong? Oh, yeah, Jesus tells us that. But they're just trying. If God says not to do it, we don't want to break the law. We want to do what God says to do. So we're going to do what God says to do. Now, uh, here's where things get a bit tricky, so stay with me. Um, Also really important to understand this, to understand what Jesus is doing here and why. So the Bible says do not work, uh, never defines work. Ultimately, this is going to come down to, if you're taking notes, the word interpretation. It's going to come down to interpretation. How do we interpret the commands? There are 613 commands in Torah. They're not, they're, that's a lot of commands, but life is complex. There's a lot of scenarios. So 613 is not probably, how do we interpret the commands? Now, um, this interpretation at the time of Jesus was what, was what was referred to as the oral law or the oral tradition. You'll hear Jesus talk about the oral tradition or the oral law. The oral law in the Jewish culture was referred to as a halakha, halakha. The word halak means to walk. The halakha was essentially how we walk out Torah. Uh, They wanted to make sure that we can be clear about what the Bible says. So there's 613 commands in the Bible, in Torah. They decide to add, they they were at the time of Jesus, or oral law, but they get written down later, um, two Two collections of laws. Uh, the first collection of law is known as the Mishnah. The Mishnah includes 3,000 additional laws to the 613. They refer to it as a fence around the law. So if you imagine, if, uh, if this is the law, then you build a fence around the law so that if, if God says, don't do this, we'll make the law a little bit more extreme so that as soon as we get to that, we realize, okay, I'm breaking this now, but I'm not breaking God's law, so I'm, I'm, I'm getting too close. Well, then they said, okay, well, that's, okay, that's good, but then there's a bunch of other scenarios that came up. What if this happens, and what if this happens? So then comes the Talmud. The Talmud is 6,000 rules, commandments. For not to do. So now they, they saw it as like a, oh, there's a fence, but then there's another fence that's further back so that if you get too close, you now know, okay, I'm too close. To, is this making any sense? Okay, so, so uh, this is the oral tradition that Jesus seems to be engaging with here. The fence around the fence, around the fence. Uh, in the Torah, in the 613, so in the Bible, one of them is you cannot harvest on the Sabbath. But the question is, is taking grain, rubbing it between your fingers, taking off the husk, and then eating that grain, is that considered harvesting? Well, now we're asking a question about interpretation. How do we interpret what is harvesting? Obviously, harvesting is if you're like threshing the floor and throwing up the grain. Like, that's harvesting. But is picking a grain, 
So if, if you have a banana field and you're like, field? Do they, bananas don't grow in fields. It's a bad example. Um, but, like, but if you've got a bunch of bananas and you start like, I'm going to collect all the bananas to sell tomorrow, that would be considered harvesting. But if you were to just open a banana and eat it, is that harvesting? This is the debate. Uh, this is the debate that Jesus is engaging here. And the way Jesus is, is going to engage it is by giving two Old Testament examples for why his disciples can do what they're doing. Okay, so two Old Testament examples. Uh, essentially what Jesus is going to say is your traditions are wrong because your traditions are putting the rule above God's intention for the rule, which is people. Okay, so verse three. That was two verses, verse three. Okay, here we go. Uh, he, he said to them, have you not read what David did? When he was hungry, David is Old Testament, right? Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Okay, it's kind of a confusing reference, right? You read that reference, like, what does that have to do with anything? Especially if you look it up and you realize that's not even on the Sabbath. That story doesn't take place on the Sabbath. What are you talking about, Jesus? Why would you bring up this obscure example for, this, for David breaking the, the law, but it's not on the Sabbath? Like, what, what's the point of this? I wrestled with that for a long time. Um, let me go to bring you to the story. It's in 1 Samuel 21. Jesus is referencing an Old Testament story here. Uh, 1 Samuel 31, uh, 21, I'll read it and then kind of explain what we're reading. Um, then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything about the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. Now, pause here so we're clear on what we're reading. Uh, stories about David. David at this point in the story has been anointed king, but he's not yet king. In fact, there is a king and that king's name is Saul. Saul does not like David and is, is kind of trying to hunt him down. And so David is on, the, is on the run, and he gets to a priest, and he's with his friends, his mighty men, and they're hungry. And so David comes to the priest and says to the priest, oh, the king sent me here, which, by the way, is a lie, okay? we got to get comfortable with this. Um, uh, I tried to talk about this last week, if you were here, that uh, sometimes the heroes are also flawed, and uh, we don't like this always, but, but David is lying here, and it's, it's a, it's a straight-up lie. And uh, anyway, let's keep reading. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. I love that detail. For such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. So as long as you're not going around and just like... But if you're trying to be godly men, there's, whole, there's holy bread here that you may have. So the priest says, I don't have any, or I don't have like extra bread. All I have is holy bread. Now what he's referring to here is uh, the 12 loaves of bread. This is the first time you're hearing this. I'll try not to be confusing. But um, in the Ark of the Covenant, there are 12 loaves of bread outside of it. Uh, as sh What the Bible refers to as show bread. It's holy bread. It was intended to say something about who God is. God is the God who provided in the desert, and so God provides for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the rules on the showbread is only the priest can actually enter into the place where the showbread is, and only the priest can eat the showbread. It's holy bread. It's not common bread. It's holy bread. 
you see the dilemma now. So you're a priest, and you've got your, your religious duties. You got to, every day, you got to put the bread in, and at the end of the day, you need fresh bread tomorrow, so you, you eat the bread. Only you can have it. Um, now you've got these guys, and they're hungry, and they're telling you they're starving, and they need bread. You don't have any bread. The priest makes a decision. The priest understands the rules. He knows the law, but he also understands that God has another law that if someone's starving, you, you feed them. And so the priest decides that what matters in this situation is not we got to keep the bread holy, but the reminder of why the bread is there in the first place. This holy bread is meant to help people. The priest interprets the, the, God's intention for the law, this is his understanding, above actually the letter of the law. Jesus points to this as an example of what he's doing. I'm interpreting the, the, you're missing, your oral law is missing the point of the law. That's example number one. Example number two, or have you not read in the law, in the Torah, how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? What does he mean by profane the Sabbath? Uh, He's probably referencing here a passage out of Numbers 28. Numbers 28 um, says this. It says, On the Sabbath day, the priest shall offer two male lambs and a, a year old without blemish and two-tenths of an ephah of flour, a fine flour, for a grain offering mixed with oil and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. <sighs> yeah. Jesus probably referencing this passage. What he's pointing out here is that is work. And yet we all understand that the priest has a job his job is to offer a sacrifice on behalf, if the, the priest's job is to serve the people. So the priest works on the Sabbath, and yet you're okay with the priest breaking it because you understand that the priest's job is more important than the priest working. Does this make sense? Those are his two examples. How you're interpreting the law, Jesus seems to be saying. Okay, so now, he, back to Jesus. He says, I tell you, Something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what that me- this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, a Hosea reference, Old Testament, you would not have condemned the guiltless. By the way, the second time, don't have time to take you in the weeds, but the second time Jesus references this exact same passage. If you are interested, you should look up when the first one is and what he's doing there as well. Same thing. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So the question Jesus keeps putting before people is, is the Sabbath set aside for people to thrive? Or is the Sabbath, does the Sabbath exist, are people set aside so that the day of the Sabbath can thrive? Which one is it? Your fences are fantastic, but if your fences miss the point of why the fences are there, when things are clear, great to have clear line, boundaries. But sometimes things are not clear, and if, you, if your fences become the point, well, you, you run the risk of missing the point. Make sense? Okay. Uh, now, at this point, I want to I just be honest with you. I want to throw up my red flag and say, well, hang on a second, Jesus. Um, uh, this feels like a bit of a slippery slope still, doesn't it? Like, if it all comes down to how you're interpreting the law, and what, what, like, isn't it possible that you, if Jesus is just interpreting the law and breaking the rules to interpret the law, then why can't we just interpret the law and break whatever rules we want to break? Isn't that a slippery slope? Does Jesus break Torah? I is my strong conviction, my strong conviction 
that Jesus never once in the scriptures breaks Torah. The 613 laws, I don't think actually if we claim he's sinless, if we believe he's sinless, I don't think he breaking the law would be a sin. I don't believe Jesus breaks the law. What Jesus breaks is their tradition. In fact, if you keep reading, uh, Jesus is going to meet a man with a shriveled hand, and it's on the Sabbath still. Now, the, uh, the debate in Jesus' day, I told you I'm taking you deep in the weeds. Uh, the debate in Jesus' day was, can you heal someone on the Sabbath? And they said, yes, you may heal someone on the Sabbath if they're dying. You're preserving life. You have to. But if it's something that can be dealt with on uh, the next day, in their case, Sunday, then you should wait till the next day after the Sabbath, and that's when you should do the healing. You should not heal if you can wait to heal. Make sense? Like if it's an elective surgery, wait to do it. So a man with a withered hand, is, is, you don't have to do it that day. They all would say, every religious Jew would say, you don't work to heal that person if you can wait to do it the next day. Jesus will heal the man, but notice how Jesus heals the man. I think he's trying to make a teaching point, and it's brilliant. He said, uh, verse 9, he went on from there and entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So they're trying to trap him. He said to them, which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Will you not take hold of it? And lift it out. How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored. Healthy like every other. Healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now um, notice how Jesus heals him. It's different than Jesus normally heals. What's different about the way Jesus heals? He doesn't touch the man. Most of the time, Jesus is touching to heal, right? He touches, touches. Jesus, just to be certain that they don't say he's working, he heals by speaking healing. Can't accuse him of anything if he's just speaking healing. That's God's will at that point. Um, But Jesus here seems to be doing this on purpose. On the Sabbath, in the synagogue, Jesus is trying to show them that it's how you interpret your law. That's what matters. It's not breaking, he's not breaking the law, he's breaking their tradition because their tradition is missing the point of the law. Some situations are ethically murky. Um, Sometimes we find ourselves presented with a situation uh, and the choice before us is complicated. Sometimes we find ourselves um, in situations where there's a choice and it feels like whatever choice I make, I'm breaking a rule, I'm breaking a law, and there's not a clear answer. I don't know necessarily what to do. Let me just give a couple case studies. A um, couple case studies. Uh, if you've ever hiked, anybody here hikers? Big hikers? Okay. Um, if you ever hike like a national trail, you'll often see a sign, and on the sign will be at least two rules. Rule number one on the sign will be whatever you take on the trail, you take off the trail, right? That's rule number one. Rule number two is don't leave the trail. Right? Stay on the trail. Don't get off the trail. So whatever you take on the trail, take off the trail. Rule number two is don't leave the trail. Now, what happens if you're walking down a trail and your hat blows off off the trail? You, if you get your hat, you're breaking. Uh, if you get your hat, you're not taking on. Or you, If you get your hat, you are getting off the trail. But if you don't get your hat, you're not bringing everything you brought on the trail off the trail. So, so what do you do? 
Now, that one's obvious because a lot of you are Dutch. I'm Dutch. That one's easy. But you understand how it's ethically murky, right? Like, it's ethically murky. Okay, case study number two. You can't keep both rules. Uh, so case study number two, you live in uh, Europe during the Holocaust, and you decide to hide a uh, Jewish family. And the Nazis come on to your door, and they say, are you hiding anyone? Is there anyone in your house? Do you lie and, uh, and tell them no and preserve life? Or do you tell the truth and say, uh, yeah, there are people hiding in my house and uh, risk life, but you've told the truth? Lying is one of the Ten Commandments. What do you do? Now, again, this one seems obvious because our worldview has been shaped by Jesus. There was a debate in the time of Jesus, case study number three. Um, there were eight great debates at the time of Jesus. Um, for many of us, um, because we follow Jesus, they're not debates anymore. But uh, in Jesus' world, there were eight great areas of, think like uh, um, uh, sexual orientation in our day, abortion in our day, like eight great debates that people wrestled with. Uh, and uh, two schools of thought were, uh, one was by a rabbi named Hillel, and the other was by a rabbi named Shammai. We talked about them when we talked about divorce. Remember that? That was one of the eight great debates. One of the debates was around the Sabbath, and how do we interpret the Sabbath? And uh, essentially, cut to the chase, um, the, the, in the book of Leviticus, you find this rule that says, if your neighbor's donkey falls into a pit, help your neighbor get your donkey out. It's why we help people when their car gets in the ditch. And Okay, that's the rule, right? Help your neighbor if their neighbor's donkey falls in a pit. But then there's also the rule in the same book of Leviticus that says, don't break the Sabbath. Now, the debate of Jesus' day was, well, what happens if your donkey falls in a pit on the Sabbath. That's the debate, right? So, because um, they disagreed on what's work and what's not work. Hillel and Shammai go back and forth and back and forth. Well, what happens if your donkey, because that's Leviticus, falls in a pit on the Sabbath? Do you help your neighbor? Now, it's at this point, this is the brilliance of Jesus, that Shammai and Hillel agreed that if this happens, a donkey, you're sparing life and you're helping your friend, yes, you help your friend, get the donkey out if it falls out, even on the Sabbath. You risk doing work. Now, the brilliance of what Jesus is doing here is Jesus will tell a story and says, which of you, if they have a sheep and it falls in a pit, he's using their case study, but he changes one word. It's not if he has a donkey. That's the debate. Jesus understands the debate. He understands that both groups will agree. You have to help the donkey out. But he says, which of you, if you have a sheep that falls in a pit? Well, big time in the weeds. But the religious leaders saw themselves. Uh, Ezekiel 34 says that the religious leaders are shepherds and the people of God are sheep. When Jesus says, which of you, if a sheep falls in? If the answer for donkey is absolutely, well, in this case, it's you're putting, you're treating donkeys better than you treat people. Did I lose you on the details of that? I'll give you a three-word three summary if, I, if you spaced out. I need you to come back. Three-word three summary is Jesus is brilliant. Brilliant. That's brilliant. It's brilliant what he does there. I, I, I'm stag, staggered by it. But let's take a, um, take a breath. We got a little bit of time. Okay. Um, let's, let's come back to our day. Back to our day. We learned some stuff from Jesus. Come back to our day. Uh, let's come back to that moment where 
um, he leans over to her and says, I can see where this is going. Well, you got to get out of here. Uh, let's come back to that. Like, what do we do with the complex situations? Um, two things. Uh, two things I want you to see from Jesus. First thing is Jesus engages the debate. Okay? Just notice that. He doesn't avoid it. He's humble. He, um, he listens. He's considerate of the other person. But he doesn't avoid the debate. He, he, he's brutally honest about what he believes. He engages the debate. He listens. He, but he does not avoid the debate. Does that make sense? Do you see that? I hope so. I spent like 40 minutes on that. <laughs> Second thing I want you to see. Okay, I spent less time on this. I want you to see that Jesus expects his followers, us, to think and to wrestle with the complexity of life. To think and to wrestle. The complexity, Jesus seems to not say this is the problem. Jesus seems to expect us. Jesus understands that the conversation he has is complex, and he engages it in all of its complexity. He never says this is really simple. He engages it in all of its uh, complexity. Um, why? Well, dare I say that, uh, that arguing and debate, if done with love and humility and listening and all that, is how we grow. Um, one of the things I love the most about my, my Jewish friends, and every time I go to Israel or talk to my friends who are Jewish, uh, I'm reminded of this thing that I love in my Jewish friends, is uh, they will unapologetically argue. If you listen in on them, eh, Italians are a little bit this way. Um, you listen in and you're like, why are you, why are you fighting with each other? Um, but they're not. They're arguing and debating and it gets heated, but they do it with love and a shared understanding that this is how we come to answers. Uh, my uh, good friend Ronan, um, I got a picture of Ronan. Uh, here's our God in Israel. By the way, when your friend, you say, hey, can you take a group shot of our, of our group? And he decides to turn the camera around and take a picture of himself. You show that picture. Um, this is Ronan. Love this man. Uh, he told the story on the bus. Um, you, should, you know what? Let's just leave it up there. Leave it up there um, for, for a second. Uh, he told the story. Uh, I was asking him um, about, like, what is the thing that you think is uh, the thing that Christians can recover from our Jewish friends? Um, what? what what is the thing that we have most lost that we can recover uh, from you? And he said, the thing I think that um, Christians have done the worst with is actually uh, debating and arguing and coming to truth through wrestling and arguing. Um, that the thing we need to, to do the most, he said, is we got to start wrestling together. That was his critique. And then he said, okay, hang on a second, got to tell a story. And so he turned to the bus and he told the story. Those of you who are on a trip, you remember the story. Um, uh, the story he told is a story that gets, uh, honestly gets at the heart of the Jewish tradition. It's about a young scholar who goes and he visits this older rabbi because he, uh, he essentially has discovered that he's, he's a UC Berkeley student and he's got just defended his dissertation in, in philosophy, um, defending Socrates and philosophical thought. And, uh, and so, but he goes to the, to the rabbi in New York and he says, Rabbi, I, um, I got some gaps in my knowledge and in my arguing and I would like to study Torah. I'd like to study Torah. Can I study under you Torah? And the rabbi says to him, well, do you speak Aramaic? And he goes, well, no, I don't speak Aramaic. He goes, how about Hebrew? Do you speak Hebrew? No, I don't speak Hebrew. And then he says, the Torah is too complex for you. You will not understand it. So the guy, the, the student says, well, come on. I studied philosophy. I, uh, got, I just defended my dissertation on Socrates, and I, I can do this. And he says, okay, okay. Um, Torah is complex. It is the deepest book there is. It is, the, it is the strongest book there is. But if you think you can study Torah, I'll give you a test. Okay, give me the test. Okay, I'll give you a test. 
Two men come out of a chimney. One man's face is dirty and the other man's face is clean. Who washes their face? The student thought, he's like, well, that one's obvious. Clearly, the man with the dirty face washes his face, right? You're trying to test my logic. That one's obvious. Like, clearly, the man with a dirty face washes his face. Wrong. Wrong. Why? Well, two men come out of a chimney. The man with the, the clean face sees the man with the dirty face, assumes his face is also dirty, so the man with the clean face washes his face. <sighs> the student thinks, come on, that was tricky. Give me another one. Give me another one. All right, if you insist. Second question. Two men come out of a chimney. One's man, one man's face is clean, and the other man's face is dirty. Which one washes their face? Well, that one, you, we, just, we just talked about this. The man with the clean face will wash his face. Wrong. Both men will wash their faces. The man with the clean face will see that the man with the dirty face has a dirty face. He'll wash his face. The man with the dirty face will see that the man with the clean face is washing his face and assume, assume that he should wash his face, so he'll also wash his face. Come on, Rabbi, that's too complex. Give me another one. Okay, two men are coming out of a chimney. <laughs> one man's face is clean and the other man's face is dirty. Which one will wash their face? So, well, we just talked about this. Both men will wash their face, he says. You're wrong again. I need you. You said you studied logic. Think logically. The, the dirty man will look at the clean man with the man with the clean face. He'll assume his face is clean and he won't wash it. The clean man will see that the dirty man is not washing his face. He'll assume, well, I guess I'm, then he won't wash his either. Neither man will wash their face. Rabbi, you're, you're playing with me now, he said. You're just like, come on now. Give me one more. Okay, one more. Two men are coming out of a chimney. One man's face is clean. The other man's face is dirty. Which one is going to wash their face? Rabbi, we just talked about this. Neither of them are going to wash their face, or both men will wash their face, or one of the men will wash their face. I, I don't understand what you're trying to say here. Um, but fine, I'll go with the last answer. Neither man will wash their face. Wrong. Think logically, the rabbi says. Think logically. You said you studied logic? I studied logic. You st Think logically. Two men are coming out of a chimney and one man's face is dirty and the other man's face is clean? That's an illogical question. That would never happen in the same chimney. The question itself is wrong. Now, here's what I like about this, okay? Here's what I love about that story. Uh, the story shows that at the heart of Torah, the heart of Torah, is that we are supposed to argue back and forth what is the right answer. Complex subjects with the understanding that there may not be one necessarily perfectly right answer. The debate to the Jewish people is what matters. It's the first thing I love. The second thing I love is that the way you debate in the Jewish world is through questions. The way actually a debate goes is uh, the, the one who doesn't ask a question loses the debate. And so you will see, um, it, you'll ask a question, and my my. My response is to ask another question, to which then you'll ask a question, to which I'll ask a question. Whoever gives up asking the right question loses the debate. Um, my, uh, my teacher, Ray Vanderlaan, back in the day, said he, went and, uh, he sent his group out to the shops in Jerusalem, and uh, this, this couple went into this little art shop, and she went into the art shop and said, did you, did you paint all these? And it's a question. So the, the art 
dealer said, yeah, I painted all of these. Why do you ask? Question. Uh, she responds back. She says, um, well, I'd like to buy one. Not a question. Which one's your favorite? The man says, do you have killed children? <laughs> That's what? Uh, yes, I have children. Why do you ask? Question, question, question. Why do you ask? Which one's your favorite? He wins the debate. Do you see? He, see what he's saying? I, all of them. I painted all of them. I love all of them. I love them for different reasons, but I love all of them. Question, question. Pay attention. Just Actually, just look at the story we just read. How often Jesus responds to a question with a question. We often think of Jesus as like the ultimate answer man. But actually, if you study the life of Jesus, Jesus is, you could think of him more as like the great questioner. Here's a stat. Write this one down if you're taking notes. Um, uh, in the gospel, Jesus will ask a lot of questions. To be precise, Jesus asks 307 questions. He asks people, 307 questions. Jesus is asked of religious leaders and Pharisees and his disciples. Jesus is asked 183 questions. Jesus will answer directly without a question. So most of the time his answer is a question, but Jesus will answer, drum roll please, Three. Three. You get three direct answers from Jesus from 183 questions, 307 questions he's asking back. Three. Why? Questions are um, relational, right? Questions require us to actually, if God is just a subject to be studied, then uh, the best student is the one who has the best answers. But if God is someone to have a relationship with, then you know, as we, as we wrestle through the hard truth, God is not... God is a, is a being to have a relationship. He's a person to have a relationship with. And so questions by nature are relational. It requires that we have a conversation. It doesn't just require that monologue is me telling you things, but questions require dialogue. The second thing uh, questions do is they require growth. Right? You, you do this with your kids. If, you just, if your kids ask you, those of you who are parents, if your kids ask you a question and you, just, you just always just give them the answer, that's your knowledge. They'll say, okay, thanks. Um, but you just gave them the answer. You gave them your knowledge. But if you ask them a question that makes them think, you've now allowed them to come to the answer on their own. And it's their answer. Um, I uh, was listening to a Jewish psychologist several years ago who said that every parent, when their kid comes home from school, should stop asking, what did you learn today? It's like not super helpful. as your first question. But instead, you should ask, did you ask any good questions today? Because if your kid learns how to ask good questions, they will learn things. Um, God expects us to wrestle. Uh, Israelites, I'm over making my point, but uh, the Israelite, the word means to wrestle. God expects people to wrestle. God has wired in our DNA that we are people who wrestle with the text. Um, I find it really interesting that God puts Ecclesiastes right next to Proverbs in our Bible. The Jewish rabbis all noticed this, this, this problem. Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, almost on every issue, contradict each other. That bothers us as, as like Westerners. But they almost, it's, one says, raise a child in the way they should go and they will not depart from it. That's Proverbs. Ecclesiastes says, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> okay, uh, teach them the rules. We'll see how that works out. Like they, but the, but the, brilliance of the scriptures is we put them next to each other. We sit them down next to each other because the truth is found in the dialogue between the two. 
If that's true of the scriptures, I would say that it's possible, and dare I say essential, that you and I, and you and your, your brother-in-law, and you and your uncle, that we sit down next to each other, remind each other of who we follow, where our ultimate allegiance is, and we sit down next to each other, and we disagree with each other. It's okay. You may not agree with everything, but we, in the ability to disagree with each other, model the one new humanity, as Paul says in Ephesians, the one new humanity. Lots of life is ethically murky. Lots of things in our world right now, ethically murky. What do we do? How do we think about this? What about the complexities? How do we think about the complexities? But we must, we can't just stop engaging or all the trolls will take over. We have to engage it. And we're pursuing the way of God. Engage the debate, listen well, think deeply, ask good questions. When in doubt of like, I don't know what to say next, ask a question. Okay, that's always helpful. Um, this is our duty. I think this is our duty. Uh, again, new humanity, this old humanity is tearing us apart. Um, by the way, if you're thinking, well, I'll, I'll just do that on social media. No, stop. I tried it too before. I tried to do this kind of like, let's talk about politics. No. We tried it. It's the old humanity. It doesn't work, right? Like we, can we make an agreement right now as a church that we're done with social media posts about politics that just inflame everybody, right? Can we be, okay, maybe not. I'll plant. The, the Holy Spirit reveals it. I just don't know that it's helping, but I do think we can be fully honest and fully like, this is what I believe, and I believe it deeply, and we can do it as Christians around a table of some sort, and we can have the conversation, and in so doing, we can invite uh, a spirit of wrestling and debate that is at the heart of a new humanity in which Christ breaks down our dividing wall of hostility. One of the ways Jesus does this, how's this for a segue, is through communion. Um, uh, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he gathered his disciples, and uh, he, uh, his disciples come from the zealots. They wanted to fight Rome, all the way to a group of Essenes who just wanted, like, we just want peace, and we want to avoid all the problems. Jesus gathers all of them, from Judas, who's going to betray him, all the way to Peter, who will say, I'll kill anyone who betrays you. Jesus brings them to a table and says, my prayer for you is that you become one, that the world may know that I sent you. Uh, and so Jesus gathered them here, and so we're going to take communion as our reminder that we do often of Jesus uniting us as one. Uh, there, we say there are three big meanings for communion. Uh, the first is that uh, through this table, God uh, reconciles us to himself. We do this as an act of remembrance of what Jesus did. Second big reason is we do it as an act of hope. Um, we do this as a reminder that uh, this life is not all there is. This life can disappoint us and break our hearts. We talked about this last week. Um, but this life is not all there is. And we take it as hope. God, restore this world. This world is broken. The third reason is we do this as a community, as an act of communion, as an act of saying, no matter what exists between us, the one who stands uniting us is way bigger. We can set it aside. It matters. But we can set it aside because the one who unites us is bigger. In him, all the old things are gone. We got four stations in the front. Um, uh, they all have a gluten-free option, I think. Um, maybe. The sides have a gluten-free option. Sorry. Uh, and uh, they all have got the little, um, I'm just going to keep calling them shot glasses. Uh, little shot glasses, one that's a little more sanitary. And then uh, we have a roamer, but I don't, is it Dave? Okay, Dave in the back uh, will be roaming. If you would like someone to serve you communion, I'll just pop your hand up as you see, make eyes with him. 
and uh, he would love to serve you. But otherwise, when you're ready, you'll come forward and take the bread and dip it into the juice, uh, and then you may have a seat again and sing and join the band in singing. Um, but would you join me in a word of prayer? Uh, Lord, we... Lord, I recognize I'm talking fast, so would you slow us down just for a moment? Help us to hear your voice. Uh, Lord, would you help us to see all the areas in our own lives that are broken and hurting? And uh, Lord, those pieces in us that have gotten um, wounded by friends, um, by words, someone that we love said, Lord, would you bring restoration to those? Uh, Lord, would you help us in this moment to be reminded of um, that your last prayer was that you would make us one. God, that your last prayer was that we would become one. Uh, And um, Lord, would you remind us that it is our becoming one that is how the world knows that you are um, worth following. And Jesus, you are worth following. And so Lord, in this moment, would you make it a holy space? We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed. As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.